Hey everybody, welcome to the SCTV Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Delaney, and I'm sitting here with Brendan Sokler. Hey Brendan. Hey Michael, how you doing? Doing good. Uh, we got the great Arthur Meyer on the show today. Nice guy. Nicest guy in comedy. No doubt about it. Um, and listeners, you know him from his many years on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, where Arthur was a writer and also a performer. Arthur's also one half of Two Fun Men, along with John Haskell. Uh, and you know him from other stuff. High Maintenance, Shrill. He wrote a book, also co-wrote a book called Fuds, or Foods, which is a bizarre, funny, unique book that he wrote along with Kelly Hudson and Dan Klein. Anyway, enough of bios. Um, we had a great conversation, Arthur and I. Now, Arthur's not a big SCTV person. He doesn't know the show that well. I, I'd say this one was more about comedy on the whole, specifically late night writing. Definitely. And Arthur's the guy you want to talk to about that because he knows a lot about comedy and he's a real working writer. So here's here's our talk with uh, the great Arthur Meyer. <laughs> Arthur, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining. It is me and us. So great to be a guest. I'm very excited. I'm actually am a little bit nervous, but it's because I, I really have very little exposure to SCTV and the exposure that I do have. I, I sort of attribute to you asking me if I wanted to be a guest on this podcast. <laughs> but the the newcomer's perspective of SCTV is interesting, especially someone who. Is a, a, who is a sketch aficionado, which you are. Um, one of the first things you brought up when we started talking about SCTV was the, the laugh track, uh, which I've become numb to after the decades, but because uh, I, I forgot how weird the laugh tracks are and were. Yeah, well, as I was watching some of those clips, I almost sort of became numb to them too because they seem so, cl- like, not... And actually, I mean, they, they truly seem divorced from the actual performance. You know, they, they really, <laughs> not, like, not to say that they don't, that the laughs don't come at funny moments, but you really can hear someone actually hitting, you know, turning the knob, you know, uh, when they use it. So it actually, to me, comes off as so egregious that it seems like an artistic choice. They did. They went through a lot of changes, but throughout those changes, it did seem like a lot of the laughs were arbitrary. But SCTV is also the kind of show where different people will laugh at different moments. There's not a lot of, like, this is, uh, uh, I think of the artists knowing exactly where the laughs are all meant to be. And so the person who was doing the laugh track, who was not one of the creative team, uh, they had their work cut out, and I guess they had their own idea of what was funny. Yeah, didn't you tell me that it was one person? Well, legendarily, in the old days, they did have a man who was a farmer who picked up work at at ITV where they shot SCTV, and and they just left it up to him. He was just a chicken farmer. He didn't have... uh, Not that there's anything wrong with being a chicken farmer or not that your sense of humor isn't valid, but that just happens to be the man whose shoulders it fell on. Like well, Gus is here. He can do he it. He's the guy. He he can farm. Well, maybe they, maybe it's the chicken, you know, across the road thing. That the you know the it is the joke. So they trusted him because he was a chicken farmer. It's you're just far less likely to cock up. <laughs> We're moving I'll see on. myself out. <laughs> We're all moving on. But you, you like, I was um, actually kind of surprised because you, I remember in our email exchange, I think you mentioned that you did not like the laugh track. Was that right? No, I don't like the laugh tracks on SCTV. They, they just seem that they're random. Although I've seen the show so many times now that I know when the laugh track laughs are coming. Yeah. And there's a couple rogue laughs where you know someone's going to kind of laugh, like cough laugh. I heard Joe Flaherty recently on one of the commentary tracks saying that for a while they got recorded laughter from live Second City shows. Oh, really? They just... 
Yeah, in an attempt to like fix the laugh track issue, they went and got live la- real laughter from Second City itself, but that didn't work either. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. think. No, go well, on. Well, everything I was watching, it, it, it looked like there that no one had ever fixed the laugh track problem at SCTV. There was no point at which they really had. Yeah, there was no point when I was watching it where I thought, oh, "Okay, they've they've improved on that." <laughs> no, they didn't. They they really never did. A lot of the fans uh, lobbied for the laugh track to be removed for the DVD release to no avail. Was there like an online petition or something? I don't remember how it went down exactly, and the internet wasn't like quite as pervasive as it is now at the time but yeah voices <coughs> voices were raised yeah but 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 not heated um so what is your impression so arthur you're like a lifetime sketch person both as a fan and as a practitioner what's your impression of sctv i find sctv to be uh very funny a lot of the time and a little bit a little bit maybe <laughs> boring sometimes i guess um i don't know if that's mm-hmm. quite the right word but maybe i mean it, it you know when i watch old saturday night live sketches there are certain sketches that i i wonder if it was just oh you know this was the this was something that you had to be there at the time to kind of understand you know sort of the zeitgeist or or where culture was at but honestly a, a lot of the sketches i i think are very funny and i think that the performances are uh Great. I, I would say my my prop my favorite cast member I, I think would probably be Andrea Martin, which um maybe surprised me because I just knew very little about her before going into into watching these these SCTV clips on YouTube. But I, I think she's hilarious and can do anything. And I was also very blown away by uh Eugene Levy. Um I've always thought he's really funny, but I was I was sort of impressed by his range on SCTV. He was really, really funny. I, I think I agree with all all what you said. I mean, uh, it's true. If you haven't seen SCTV, you might not realize what a superwoman Andrew Martin is and how flexible and capable her and Eugene and their castmates are. Um, but the part about it being a little boring, I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, it, the show's old. Sometimes they had too much time to fill. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a 90-minute slot, and they really didn't want it. NBC gave them that 90-minute slot because of, I think, executive lack of creativity. They just used the SNL model of 90 minutes with musical guests, oh. and you guys figure it out. They never had musical guests, and they were a 30-minute show that suddenly leaped to a 90-minute show, and they had to, and they chose to write in the musical guests into the bits. And not just put, not just prop them up and have them sing a song. That's just an insane um, amount of of output. I mean, that's you know to to do a you know because I, I I worked at Fallon. We you know we would do an hour long show every night, but really it was only about fifteen minutes of actual comedic content, and the rest is just interviews and musical guests. You know, yeah. um, but to do ninety minutes of comedy every week is that that's a lot especially because they didn't really ever have that big of a cast right uh, i mean their cast never exceeded what eight or nine people at, at any given time that's right it, it would top out at, at like seven eight you know with extra players and yeah. stuff and tra- you know when they were in transition when they had martin short coming in they were, it was, of course, sort of like having eight, but really they only had seven max. Now, here's a question I have for you. This is what I'm very interested in because I did some research on the show. Why did they have so many different uh, incarnations of, of the cast? Were people unhappy there? Or was it just sort of like a, a revolving door kind of situation? Like, because it seemed like there were a few people who who stayed for most of it, you know, and but then there were some like John Candy who came and went, or Martin Short, Robin Duke who you know were there later, Catherine O'Hara who was not there the entire time. Why did they have so many different casts? They went through those changes, I think, mostly because of other ambitions. Um, but like you say, the, four of the cast members were there from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. The first one to go is Harold Ramis, because he had bigger fish to fry, you know? He was writer-performer season one, then just writer season two. By then, he really—it was time for him to move on to movies. Right. Um, so they had to, they had to bring in 
And then the show died. They did their first two seasons, and the show died for a whole year, and everyone thought it, it was gone forever. And after skipping a season, it got resurrected by Dr. Allard, this rich doctor and uh, surgeon in Canada. And he made them come to Edmonton and shoot at his facility, so he single-handedly resurrected the show. And so a, 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 they cobbled a cast together, whoever they could keep, because John Candy was off doing other things. Catherine O'Hara was already off doing other things because the show basically went down. But then they got Rick Moranis, Robin Duke, and Tony Rosato to join the cast. And it revived the show, and the show looked great. So now all of a sudden the show's back, and it looks terrific. And... After that first season, they got the NBC deal. So now the budget was bigger. Everyone's getting paid more. John Candy came back for whatever John's reasons were. And Catherine O'Hara came back for whatever her reasons were. She wanted to live a life. She said that she felt that SCTV was too taxing and she just wanted to live her life. So what brought people away from SCTV was a love for other things, not problems with the show. And it shows because both John and Catherine would return. And then after they would quit a second time, they would also both return as guests particularly Catherine returning more frequently. So when they lost, after a couple seasons on SCTV, on NBC, rather, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis got big because of the McKenzies, and they left the show to go do the Bob and Doug McKenzie movie. John Candy moved on to do movies, and they brought in Martin Short, who kind of saved the show artistically. He was that burst of energy. He was that new blood that they really needed. And was he just? And, and he was so. Was he completely new? Was he completely new at the time? I mean, I know that obviously he, uh, you know, had been doing stuff, and because I think he was in what uh, I always wanted to say, Jesus Christ Superstar, but it's not that. It was that Godspell. Godspell. Thank you. Yeah. So, what, but what was he doing before SCTV? Lots and lots of theater. Oh, okay. He. Actually, Martin Short kind of skipped past Second City. Everyone in that whole Toronto gang that he was part of and part of that Godspell gang, they all did Second City. And Martin Short had been in the business and been doing stuff in the business for so long that I think he, for for his own reasons, he didn't want to do Second City. He was one of the guys who was like, no, I'm going straight for it, uh, right for it. But then eventually he came crawling back and he, went, <laughs> he did do Second City and he did get in the cast of SCTV. Um, so he was a busy beaver before he got on the show. Yeah, well, he's, I mean, he, that's my, he's hilarious on the show. That's my cat. Oh, he's absolutely hilarious. He, as Joe Flaherty says, Martin saved their bacon because he, he also complained about it. He said no one could be that chip. Gene, com, Eugene Levy complained about him, said no one could be that chipper at 630 in the morning. <laughs> With a lot of energy. I remember because well, I've, I've worked with him on Fallon a couple of times, and he was like that backstage too. He was just making joke after joke, and I couldn't believe how on he was. You know, it, it, I mean, I, it, it also made sense though because if you've ever seen him as a talk show guest, he basically just rattles off like fifty jokes that he you know wrote himself. You know, well he he prepares. Yeah. Catherine O'Hara said she didn't know how to prepare for a talk show until she talked to Martin about it. And uh, she said, oh, you were so funny. Or, oh, I know. She told him, he told this story about when he um, uh, uh, met Catherine Hepburn at the theater. He's told it on a couple talk shows. It's a very funny story. And after, the, uh, after Catherine heard that, she said, I didn't know you met Catherine Hepburn. And he said, I didn't. I met Shirley MacLaine, but I don't do Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> she said... It was that moment she realized that you got to plan and prep and kind of write a little bit for these talk show appearances, which I think is what Martin Short does. He really prepares. Yeah, but he actually he truly writes. I mean, he 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 he, yeah. really, he really thinks of and apparently memorizes one-liner jokes. It's very it's very funny. It's very old school, very like Friars Club kind of roast roasty sort of jokes, you know. I know. It's funny. He he's, he loves reading those uh, People magazines and stuff like that. He just, it's just, he reads a lot, though. He reads all, he reads the real stuff, too. Yeah. I think. Um, well, I, I used to love following the SCTV cast 
and Saturday Night Live cast when they would go on talk shows because so often they would bring a sketch with them or write a sketch or do a bit. They're somehow, Martin Short would always sing a song or do a bit or, or just give you a little, Steve Martin was that way too, where they would just give you a little extra something. Oh, well, now Steve Martin I worked with on Fallon too, and he was the most prepared I've ever seen a, a guest, like the most a guest has ever worked on their bit. That was that was Steve Martin. He he was working on the bit, uh, you know, at least a week in advance, which a lot of times the guests will, you know, maybe they read the script beforehand, but they do the majority of the work the day that they show up when you're rehearsing. But, you know, this was a, a bit that we were doing that involved a pre-tape element and a live-to-tape element. And Steve Martin, I remember being on the phone with him on like a Tuesday morning, and his appearance wasn't scheduled until the following Monday. And he was asking me to sing, you know, how how the song, you know, went. And this was six days ahead of his appearance. And then I remember the day of the pre-tape, which was that Friday, he showed up at least a half hour before his call time. Um, and I couldn't believe, you know, he had, there wasn't any reason that he had to, you know, need to be that prepared. It, it, it was purely that he, he wanted to. And it was incredible. And then it was amazing. And then I remember we finished the pre-tape and... I saw him, you know, he said goodbye. He was very nice. I saw him turn and walk down the hall and he had like a trench coat on and what looked like a fedora hat or something. And he just was walking with his back, you know, to everyone else. And there wasn't anyone accompanying him. And I just remember thinking like, (laughs) there goes a great man. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. Now I must go out there and sit in the velvet chair and ask him about his wife and kids and pretend as if I care. I don't care. No one cares. No one cares. I only agreed to come on this show February 29th because I thought that date didn't exist. Damn you, leap year. Who put a spell on you at the Tonight Show? Uh, Will Ferrell. Um, Working with him was you know unbelievable he he was just so down to earth and very friendly and i remember at one point he was reading through a script uh that my friend john haskell and i wrote together and he he was just kind of silently read very closely reading it page by page you know laughing at certain you know points i don't know if he was doing that to make us feel nice or if he was or to, to make us feel good or if he was really genuinely <laughs> laughing yeah. but then at one point he there was one line he stopped at and he said, now, how, how, how do you want me to say this line here? Do you want me to say it angry or, or kind of sad? And we just couldn't even believe that he was asking us our opinion. Um, you know, we, we were just like, well, you, you know, in my mind, I wanted to say you could just go be Will Ferrell and say it however you want to say it when you're out there. But I think mm-hmm. we might have had the wherewithal to say, you know, uh, maybe we were thinking a little bit angry, but really whatever you're feeling when you're when you're out there, you know, <laughs> Um but it was it was I was sort of spellbound by just how nice uh, he was to work with. Um, pretty much any person who was a cast member on Saturday Night Live was extremely nice. This is this is a very um, cool thing that happened. So when I was 16 years old, I wrote a fan letter to Rachel Dratch, and she had been a cast member on Saturday Night Live for one season at that point. And uh-huh. I got it in my head to write a fan letter to a cast member on the show, and I chose her for two reasons. One, um, I thought she was very funny. And two, she had only been on the show for a year, so I thought that her chances of writing me back or of receiving and reading the letter, at least, were <laughs> were greater. So I wrote her a letter, and I asked her, you know, what, you know, I'm, I'm like 16 years old, you know, I'm an aspiring comedian, do you have any advice, that kind of stuff. And she hand wrote a letter back to me and included a signed uh, headshot. And in the letter, she recommended, you know, places like Improv Olympic or Second City, because I think I had mentioned I was from, you know, the Chicago area. I was from a suburb of Chicago called Wilmette. And um, so that was so, so cool. Now, then... 12 years later, I've just gotten hired as a writer at, Fall- at Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, and it's my second week on the show, and Rachel Dratch is a guest. And 
I decided to go backstage and, you know, after her appearance, kind of, you know, creepily hang outside of her dressing room. <laughs> and when she left the dressing <laughs> yeah. room, I, I went up to her and I introduced myself and I said, uh, uh, you know, hi, Rachel, I'm, I'm really sorry to bother you. I'm a, I'm a writer here at the show. And um, I just want to say when I was uh, 16 years old, I wrote you a fan letter and, and you hand wrote me a letter. But, and she sort of kind of cuts me off and she goes, are you Arthur? So she remembered who I was. Oh. Before I even said my own name, it was unbelievable. Have you talked to Dratch? Like, uh, had friendly conversation after that? I think. I I feel like were you her first? Were you? I must have been one of her first like fan, fans or fan letters because I I can't imagine she would have remembered my name otherwise, unless she has a a really good memory for that sort of thing. That's sweet. So you're from Chicago, and were you tempted to do Second City? How did you escape without uh, getting sucked into the gravity, the, the the gravitational pull of Second City? The gravitational pull was very strong. I now I did take Second City classes in high school, so I would I would take the L train down to the Sedgwick stop in Chicago on Saturday mornings, my junior year of high school, and I did that for about ten months, and then I kind of stopped doing it my senior year but i you know i used to go to see the shows you know all the time so this is like 2000 probably around 2000 to 2004 um sort of end of high school early college so some of the cast members i remember were people like uh jack mcbrayer uh abby share peter gross keegan michael key um who was especially funny in a show called holy war batman which have which took I think uh, ran less than it started. It, its run started less than two months after September 11th. And aside from that first issue of The Onion after September 11th, it was kind of the first real scripted comedy I had seen. You know, that was in any way about September 11th that I thought was really kind of um, covering it in a really smart way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, my, my choice was between New York City and Chicago. And I, I, New York City I wanted to go to because I thought that would maybe help eventually, you know, lead me towards Saturday Night Live, which is what I always wanted to do, um, or be a writer and a performer at a late night show. But then Chicago had Second City, and um, I had a girlfriend at the time who lived in Chicago. So ultimately, the I was basically deciding between girlfriend and second city classes <laughs> or sketch comedy group. Cause I had four friends who were moving to New York city and, um, we were, we were talking about starting a group and together. no girlfriend, and no girlfriend. Exactly. So I went with the New York city, the sketch comedy group and a long distance relationship. Um, but yeah, it, it was how that was, work. And the, so did the the comedy group worked out, and the relationship didn't. Yeah, so the comedy group was Pangea Three Thousand, which uh, yes, Pangea. I remember Pangea. Yeah, so we you, we did a bunch of shows at the UCB over the years, and um, you know, the, uh, one of the guys from the group, Seth Reese, he kind of introduced me to this guy Mike Desenzo, who was kind of the uh, connective tissue between me and ending up at, at Jimmy Fallon. Let's just have fun. Let's not be serious. Play it for laughs. Let's just be cheerious. We don't give a damn for pundits who were sage and solemn. We read Sheila Graham. She really writes a swinging column. Let's just have fun. Let's dig the happening. Well, I mean, something you said really resonated with me, which is that you know, the way I saw it, like having a career as a Second City performer would have also been more than I could ever dream of. I mean, I when I used to go to those Second City shows, I was just enthralled by how talented the performers were. And they seemed like they could do everything, too. They seemed like they could do, um, you know, characters or singing or dancing or impressions. Like it was I was kind of blown away by the, the range of their talents. I was, too. I used to make um, trips from... I lived in South Florida, but I would make these journeys to Toronto and Chicago just to see Second City. And I I thought the level that they were working at and the fact that they were doing it every day was amazing and something that just didn't exist other places. Which which Second City shows do you remember seeing that kind of stuck with you? Or which cast members? The first time I went... The first time I went was in Toronto, and I was smitten by the entire cast. There was a guy named Dana Anderson who was amazing. There's a couple of women there, um, Deborah Thaker and Linda Cash, who would go on to work 
uh, in the Christopher Guest, some of those Christopher Guest improvised movies and other things. You might uh, recognize those two. Mike Myers was in the cast, uh, too. Uh, Mark Wilson. They did a show called Who's Tory Now? Or Bob Has Seen the Wind. Something like that. This is like mid mid eighties or so, like eighty six, eighty seven. This yeah, yes, this would be late eighties. Yeah. And by the time I got to Chicago, they had people like Bonnie. They had Bonnie Hunt was in the cast, but I just missed her. I got to see Joel Murray, mm-hmm. and I just missed Richard Kind. I don't remember exactly who was coming in, and I, I think I forget the name of the review. Ron West was doing ETC. I watched the ETC shows too. Yes. Um, I saw so many of them uh, through this uh, in a short course of years, so they're all kind of jumbled, you know. Yes, totally. But I still think that there's very few places you get an education like that in comedy where you're working, you're being paid, but those guys, they really earn what they get. They work all day and every night, and they work on holidays. They work on their birthday. At places like UCB, you don't do that. You make your own schedule. And if you're up on stage a few nights a week, you're doing very different things. They're all self-generated. It's not, you don't wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning and go, well, that's pretty late for the after person. But you don't (laughs) wake up in the morning and go to work every day. It's up to you to motivate yourself and do it yourself. And and comedians are are generally a bit lazy and tend to procrastinate. And they're not going to do that unless you have a job to show up to. Yes. Maybe maybe there are those go-getters who work on their comedy eight hours a day and then all night, every night, but I don't know. I am not one of those. I'm not one of them. Yeah. (laughs) I think laziness is a very, is a trait very inherent to many comedians. Can you be a Tonight Show writer or a writer on one of the big talk shows, a la Tonight Show, and be lazy? Yes, but the only reason you're not lazy is because technically you have all these deadlines that you have to meet, but it's a bunch of lazy people meeting who, you know, have to meet deadlines. <laughs> so the, so it's inherently lazy people conforming to the work. That's what I think. I mean, I, I do think that anyone who's worked in comedy will find someone who, uh, you know, people every now and then who really do, you know, work their asses off. But then I think for the most part, it, it's people who are, you know, who are very funny, who just don't necessarily have the greatest work ethic in the world. <laughs> I think I, I think people who are working in this industry all work their ass off one so? way or another. Yeah, we just rise very late during the day, but then we keep working till like five in the morning. It's so funny because I remember um, when I was at Fallon one time, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's daughter was like interning. Um she so she was like an intern and you know the interns would sometimes schedule like a meeting with the writers and uh just to have like an informational meeting with them and and um so I met with her and it was just me and her Jerry Seinfeld's daughter and it, you know at one point I remember she said um you know it was clear that she was very influenced by her dad cuz she goes you know I just think that being a comedian is just like the hardest job in the world you know Wow. And I said, uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't think that it is. And she said, no, no. She, <laughs> she goes, I just think it's like really hard, like to know what, you know, like to find your own like voice and, to, you know, figure out like, you know, what, what's going to make people laugh is so hard. And I said, like, I think it's, I, I think that like, any job sounds so much harder than that. Like being a doctor sounds so much harder, <laughs> like driving a bus and making those turns, like everything, everything sounds harder than being a comedian. <laughs> That's, they're, they're trained. Yeah. <laughs> they're trained professionals. I feel like as an actor, I still find myself really, uh, marveled by comedians because of the aspect of you have to know who you are. That seems like the tricky thing. Uh, and then you have a bunch of people having midlife crises because they haven't addressed that. But if you're doing comedy from your point of view, you have to have kind of figured it out. And that seems terrifying and tricky. As an actor, I'm like, oh, I'll plug into whatever other person's work is but you have to plug into yourself that's scary yeah well it is scary but then also i i have found that and i don't know if delaney if you found this too that the audience like the audience tends to respond 
the most to the parts uh, to the to the authenticity of of yourself so you know um i was on herald night for a little over a year and you know i i didn't think i was that great at improv but i do remember there were certain scenes that i did where i really felt like i was being myself and in those those scenes I, I I tended to find would get a generally a better response from the audience when when I was just being myself more. So then the feedback that you get from the audience kind of get actually gets you more in touch with with who you are as a performer. That's what I've found at least. I don't think it's that different with the scripted word and with improvisation that the that you've got to get to yourself somehow. What Brendan was just saying reminded, it made me think a little bit like, well, when you're a full-on comedian, you're being you. you got to be a totally you. <laughs> and when you're in a play, the playwright tells you who you are. The playwright tells you if you're Hamlet or Gertrude or Othello or what, but it's still you. You've got to bring you. You've got to bring you to your Othello and to your Gertrude or it ain't going to fly any... It, 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 you're not going to make that connection. And that's why you made those connections in those Harold scenes because you were just being yourself, just being honest and laying it out there. And at the end of the day, that's the reckoning for every actor, whether it's a goofy comedy bit or, you know, doing Shakespeare, mm-hmm. I think is bringing yourself to the work and some authenticity to it. Yeah, I, I think so too. Whoa, whoa, I got up, I got on the marble altar there for a second. <laughs> no, I, I liked I, it. I, I, I love that kind of stuff. Like this is, this is my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> Comedy, uh, that comedy actually, philosophy. Shit, shit, just yes, comedy philosophy for sure. Uh, I was just about to change gears to something that was quite the opposite. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I wanted to ask you about the day in a day in the life of a comedy writer. How, how does it actually play out? I think people, a lot of people who are writing and and aspire to become writers, are curious as how, how it goes down. What do you actually do when you show up? And um, you know, how much contact do you have with other writers, the head writer, and the big cheese, whoever's at top, whether it's Johnny or Conan or Jimmy or whomever? Yeah, well, I should say, so I was at Fallon from 2012 to 2019, and uh, I was a writer for the first four years, and then I was a sketch supervising writer for the last three years. So um, those those two roles changed you know, what my, they kind of dictated what my schedule was. So when I was, uh, you know, just writer at the show, I would usually get into the office around maybe nine on a typical day. And then I would leave at probably eight or eight thirty. Um, and the, the way that the day was structured there would be that the morning tended to be the busiest part of the day because you're, you're kind of getting, you're preparing everything to go into a meeting, uh, where Jimmy will look at everything that might be on the show that day or later that week or ideas that are being pitched for later in the month and just say yes or no to them or give notes to them. Um, so you're kind of getting your ideas into shape for that meeting. And then when it's your idea that he's going to look at, you're kind of, you are sort of invited into the meeting and he'll read out loud your script or your jokes or whatever it is. And that is a very nerve-wracking experience, um, especially for the first year or so that you're on the show. You feel like every uh, every time you're in there, it's you know do or die, even though it really isn't like that in actuality. Um, mm. And then, you know, the the uh, the afternoon is you know devoted to if if you have a sketch that's on the show that day, you're you're kind of producing the sketch. So as a writer at at these late night shows. I actually don't think all the late night shows have, have this model, but shows like Fallon. And I think it's my understanding. You probably know better than I do that Conan had the, the SNL model too, where the writer is the, is also a key producer on the sketch. So uh, as a writer, you know, we would be, uh, you know, in charge of kind of going from department to department, the wardrobe, the music. So you talk to the roots, if there's music and something, or you talk to the costume people or, the props, um, the set design, you know, whatever it is, you're basically. So when you, yeah. So when you write a sketch, you become the shepherd for that sketch, and you take it around to wardrobe and makeup and props and check in with those departments and make sure things are going the way you want them to go, or that everybody's on the same page. Exactly, and I mean, you will, you know, I would get some creative direction from Jimmy on on certain things, but depending on what the sketch was or what the bit was that you were working on you know, you would maybe be trusted to kind of know the answers to those questions yourself instead of, you know, bugging him with uh, 
questions, which, you know, I, I, I would find that he would just get asked tons of questions every day because, you know, the, the person who's at the top of these shows is kind of the person who's steering the ship. So everyone's just constantly going up to them saying, like, and what do you think? Like, do you want the curly hair wig or the straight hair wig? You know, um, <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, and then throughout the day, there are just constant deadlines that, you know, it'll be at the end of the day. We, you know, we want this amount of jokes for this bit, um, you know, so you're working on that or trying to email it in. Or you could just kind of come up with whatever sort of sketch idea you have there's a lot of time to just kind of fuck around with um the other writers there um and hopefully come up with something that you think is funny but if you're there at one of those shows long enough as i was uh then you will eventually kind of use everything in your own repertoire (laughs) um which for me included a voicemail that my mom left me on my phone and you know years ago um which i turned into a bit on the show or a fan letter that I wrote to Bob Saget when I was eight years old. Bob Saget was coming on the show, and I thought it would be fun if I read him the the letter. Um, so I don't know. It, it, there, there's sort of there there is a, a lot of structure at these shows, but also in terms of the generating of the comedy, it's very loose and it's very much um, you know just whatever you want to do your comedy about. You know, like a lot of these shows, I think have room for comedy that's maybe a little bit more down the middle more kind of uh accessible to middle america or or whatever but then also there's there's plenty of room for weirdness too so as a writer at one of these shows you could kind of determine what kind of material you want to get on the show um you know whether you want it if i can interrupt you for a sec i i arthur i find that your material is not lacking in edge but it's extremely accessible because your shit is fun. It's fun, and it, it's unapologetic. You like to go straight at it. Yes. You're not coy. You know, Usually, I don't remember you being coy, or do you beat around the bush? Usually, if there's a bit, you attack the bit. Yeah, well, I think that's my Conan influence. I mean, that was... that. I mean, I, don't you think that was just such a staple of... I mean, I, I think the era of SNL that I, that I kind of grew up on there was a lot of that too where you just say what the bit is before you get to the bit you know you just say like yes you know the man with bulletproof legs or whatever you know i mean i right framing stuff yeah there's something so funny about just about just saying what something is and then just doing it (laughs) yeah the that's the unapologetic part like we own this from the beginning yeah and uh we're just gonna go after it um, I, I always liked your bit. Paul Giamatti visits the Cheesecake Factory for the first time, <laughs> largely for the title, and it doesn't disappoint. But you know what? The title is enough to really make you laugh, and for you to see, <laughs> and to kind of see where this is going to go. Although no one could predict exactly where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned John Haskell earlier. He's one half of the two fun men. Were you guys fun men before Fallon, or did Fallon was that a matchmaker for you two in some way? Were you a team beforehand? Well, how'd that go down? Yeah, well, two fun men actually le- kind of led to both of us getting uh, uh, be- be- being on the sh- being on Fallon. So you know, oh, that was a conduit to getting the show. Oh, that's great. I love duos, and I love that that catapulted you guys. Yeah. So we yeah we had our first show at the UCB. We auditioned a show in two thousand nine which did not get a run and then the following year we auditioned a show which did get a run and our friend mike desenza who was a writer at fallon at the time um he asked if jimmy wanted to go see the show one night so the show was called two fun men present two men having fun and jimmy came to see the show on friday night and yeah he 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 really liked the show and he came backstage and you know gave us some nice you know compliments and then i then a couple months later they hired John. So John got hired first out of two fun men. He did. So yeah, about two months after Jimmy saw the show uh, at Fallon, they were hiring four writers and they had filled three of the slots. And the fourth slot came down to either me or Haskell. And they went with, with, with Haskell, <laughs> um, uh-huh. which, you know, I was happy for John at the time, but of course I was also, you know, jealous and angry and worried that, you know, my chance had slipped past me. But then I think about maybe 10 months later, I got hired on the show. And um, 
so then we did a bunch of two fun men stuff on the show but two fun men started out i mean john and i met each other in a ucb level four improv class you know i was between kidney i got one of my kidneys in 2008 and i was sort of in recovery and i had a little i had to step away for a little while Mm -hmm. and i think that's why i missed a bunch of your stuff because i'm wondering why have i not seen these things and i realized i think it's because i was in recovery but gee i was such a big fan of your work at at ucb i I really wasn't i i somehow don't remember us actually meeting I don't really remember us meeting either. I'm trying to remember what and what. I mean, it must have. But I'm certain we. I'm certain we've met. Yes, we definitely have met before. I know that much. <laughs> it must many times. It must have had to do with Mod Night or something because I we both had a lot to do with Mod. I mean, I directed a yes. team there for a while, and I think I used to see you there a lot. And we've definitely smoked weed in your car a few times. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, I don't remember those incidents in particular, but I'm glad we did. Me too. Um, you know what? I became such a big fan of your directing. I remember that. I I think I got to know you and associated you as more of a director than a performer simply because I hadn't seen you on stage a whole lot. But I loved your directing. Your mod teams always did well and were peculiar and unique in a in the best way. And then you, did, and then you did that brand new day show. Yes. And I was completely sold on that. <laughs> And that's when I decided that you were a, a kind of a magician wizardy guy. Oh well, thank you so much. That that really means so much. I I remember um, hanging out with you one of the nights because I think we did that show, and then I think the show there was an encore. Yeah, there was an encore. You, got ca- and, you guys got called back. No, not just an encore of like come take a bow. You did an encore performance. Yes, yeah. Where UCB was like you have to do that one again. And I think I remember because hanging out with you and. Horatio came to see I think you maybe brought him to see the show that night Um, because there was one very specific joke that we did in the show which I think really was almost aimed at you know like people who watched SNL religiously so the joke was that yeah so the we did an entire show about the sting song brand new day Um, yes we got to we got to set it up for the listeners who probably haven't seen it so sting the uh, uh, very famous musician mm-hmm. uh known from the police he puts a, a an album and it with a single called brand new day does anyone remember that i don't think anyone remembers that song no because it's kind of like if you took all of the songs in history and just averaged them out i think that would be brand new day like brand new day to me sounds like the mean like just the average of music you know so it's like a, a like a paradigm of mediocrity yes exactly but at the same time it, it is kind of catchy and it does have sort of a positive message, and I, you know, it's hard to get that song out of your head. So the group you're directing decides to. We did an entire show about that song. So we did 18 different <laughs> bits. <laughs> That and eighteen was it that many? Yeah, because a lot a lot of them were were very short. <laughs> and we think we <laughs> it had a very up with people vibe. I remember there was one that was just a dance number. Yeah, everyone's wearing sweatshirts, all different colored, yes. rainbow sweatshirts. Yeah, uh, t-shirts. It was single solid colored t-shirts with like khaki pants, and the shirts were tucked in. There was no irony. There was to that section, that particular section. There was no irony. There was no joke. It's just we're going to dance our asses off to this song and just celebrate. Yes, this this very average me- radio yes, song. Yes, it was a celebration of of mediocrity. And um, you know, we thought it would be fun for the show to, because it was it was kind of this theme show, which was didn't really happen a lot on Mod Night to really kind of go all out. So for us, what that meant was. You know, for one bit, we hired or, or we got a uh, college acapella group to sing the song Brand New Day at the end of a sketch. And then a different thing that we did in the show was we we found a guy from Craigslist uh, named Gerard Adamondo to play uh, Sting, to come on as Sting. And, and we thought it would be fun to kind of, you know, lead, let the audience believe that we had actually gotten like the Sting to come, like Sting himself. <laughs> And I remember Mamrie Hart was 
introducing him and you could kind of feel the energy in the house sort of, you know, people were like, oh my God, they didn't actually get sting, did they? And then the 60-year-old man who actually happened to be only a, f- a few months apart in age from sting himself, um, except he's, instead of sting, he's a guy who I think like worked for the New York Fire Department for years or something. He's just a very New York-y guy. Um, he came out and then later in the show so yeah he played sting in that sketch and then later in the show we did a different sketch where zach broussard played sting but then our fake sting kind of tapped him on the shoulder you know how they do on saturday night live (laughs) sketches when they have like someone playing uh you know like a a certain actor like michael j fox or something yeah and then michael j fox the real michael j fox comes in suddenly um, so we did that. That's in, hilarious. I think her, I remember Horatio recognizing that exact joke. You know, I used to write for The Onion, too. I got a sting joke in The Onion one time. I, I kept hearing fields of gold when I was on hold. So I wrote some joke about Sting's next single being released directly to on hold, like when you're waiting on hold. <laughs> That's great. I, I've noticed, I noticed music plays often a large role in, in your comedy, and I think your life, we're actually, I'm involved in a music project, which you kind of head up, which I think is wrapping up, but I notice it in your work, too, uh, what a big part music is, and boy, I love that. I think sketch comedy and music is just, uh, it's just a great combo. I think so, too, yeah. I I remember I saw Dana Carvey do stand-up a couple years ago, and he... It was just a, a really small club, and he was very loose. And at one point, he referred to some bit as just... He's like, this one's just a rhythm bit. And I don't think a lot of people in the audience even knew what he was talking about. But I kind of understood what he was saying. And if you've seen him perform, you know, he, seem, he seems like someone who performs and music comes across in his performance. So much of so much of what he does is just rhythm or, re, you know, repetition, um, yeah, and repetition is a big part of music, and I find repetition to be one of the funniest uh, things in general. Wow, are you musical? Do you? I think you said you're trying to pick up piano, but like, is that part of your? Well, yeah. The reason I started doing piano is because I've always wanted to play an instrument, but just never had. So let me ask you a question then. Yes. Since we're talking about music, did you get a chance to make any, um, create any fake bands for the Tonight Show? I love i have an obsession with fake bands oh god i love fake bands so much i feel like i saw you in a fake band on fallon well i've been i've been in fake bands before because my favorite bit that we ever did on the show which we did maybe seven times or something was a bit that i wrote called first drafts of rock which yeah (laughs) yes it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like but it's it's also a bit that works extremely well because jimmy can do an impression of just about anybody so you know oh yeah uh yeah it was so sometimes i would be in the backing band for whatever the band was that was doing the you know first draft like i think i was in the clash and then another time i was in the the guess who for american woman oh did you guys do the doors they did the doors on the show, but it wasn't part of that bit. I think they did Jimmy as Jim Morrison singing the Reading Rainbow theme, which actually it was arranged as a door <laughs> song, and it, it's it's a truly incredible performance. I can go anywhere. God, yes, I saw that. Yeah, Jimmy's a savant with the voices. He really is, yeah. He was, I remember, um, because he was doing an impression of the lead singer of the Guess Who, um, specifically this one dance move that the guy did from like a live performance from 1970. And it's something that no one would pick up on unless they were obsessed with the Guess Who. But Jimmy Jimmy enjoys that level of, of detail, you know. He loves music. I noticed yeah. that Jimmy really loves... Uh, there's, like, no genre that he doesn't truly dig. No, he has one of the best tastes in music of anyone I've ever met. Like, he he really seems open to all genres and interested in all genres. It seems that way. Um, do you have fake band, other fake bands that you've created? I want to hear about them. Oh, my God. Well, there's... A, let me see if I could find this one thing. So there was a sketch that we did. You know, I, I, can, I can insert it in post... 
Well, this actually isn't a thing that ever aired on the show, but it was something that got approved, but then I think rejected um, eventually. Uh, let's see here. Okay, here we go. Um, okay, yeah. So <laughs> this is the closest I ever came to being to doing a fake band thing on the show. The King, Do you know the band The Kings of Leon? Yeah, I've heard of them, yes. I, I know if I heard so them. So they were coming on the show, and they were open to doing a sketch, and so Jimmy approved the sketch that I wrote, <laughs> and then we sent it to the Kings of Leon, and then they respectfully passed on doing the sketch after after they had agreed to the idea. So they must have just had oh. second thoughts or not liked the the actual content of the sketch. But the sketch yeah. goes: Jimmy says, "Hey guys, welcome back. As I said before, our musical guest tonight is Kings of Leon." And, you know, I was backstage talking to them before the show, and I was curious to know how they came up with their name, Kings of Leon, and they told me it wasn't easy. They said it was a long process, and they actually spent months trying to think of it. In fact, they even started videotaping themselves trying to come up with a name just so they could capture the moment when they finally did. Well, believe it or not, they actually brought that tape with them here tonight. Here, check it out. So then we're in a house or a garage with a... It says Nashville, 1998. Um, and they've just finished playing a song. And then Jimmy's playing their manager. He goes, all right, boys, great practice. You sound sensational. Now, as you know, I'm your manager, Larry Leopards. I thought I should clarify that in case any of you forgot who I am. I'm going to be honest. You boys are ready to record your first album. The year is 1998. The whole world is ready for you. But the one thing you still haven't decided <laughs> on is a band name. So let's put our brains together and think of one right now. <laughs> How does that sound? And then they all nod their head and agree. Great. Now, why don't we just toss out some ideas, okay? What can you guys call yourselves? And then, so th this will now go back and, this is about to go back and forth between me playing a different member of the band and then Jimmy responding to each suggestion. Panther Judge? Hmm, no. Dr. Frisbee? Doesn't sound right. The Scared Unicorns? I don't think so. <laughs> Oatmeal Raisin Autopsy? No, those aren't bad guys, but we need we need some better names, so I'm going to help you out. Now, what about Thunder Mountain Girls? Timmy Piff and the Squeezers? Mexican Tuesdays? King Latifah? Martin Van Rocken? <laughs> Anderson Cooper Super Trooper Pooper Scooper? Mom's Basement Boys? The Sweet Little Kisses? Bulbous Turkey? Plunker's Opening? The Beautiful Women? Skunkle? Danny Dunch and the Hot Lunch Bunch? Nuts with a Z. Electric Love Orgy. <laughs> no, guys, these are all amazing names, but we still haven't hit the jackpot. I'm Larry Leopards. Keep them coming. Miley Stylish. The Rock and Roll Fun Machine. Tyler Martin. Ranger Rap and his freaky funk <laughs> and his freaky fun friends. The University of Iowa Cedar Rapids. Music Schmusic. The Squishy Dishes. Maybe just three question marks that we just be called, huh? The, the Tiny Penis Band, The Nervous Moms, Fruit Basket, The University of Iowa Cedar Rapids, <laughs> George Washington's Boner, Seinfeld, The Sweet Boogie Ladies, Matchbox 19, The Peekaboo Boys, The Assheads. Enough! These names are mind-blowingly good, but we still haven't found the right one. So here's what we're going to do. On the count of three, everyone say the first thing that comes to mind, and that will be the name of the band, Okay. One, two, three, and then everyone goes, Kings of Leon. Yes, we did it. And that's the end of the sketch. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder they didn't want to do it. You just mocked the shit out of their stupid name. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I really, I really can't blame them. Oh, yeah. That's just rubbing their nose in it. Yeah. <clears throat> that's nice. You know, when I was younger, I used to fight for everything. If I thought something was right, I used to fight for it. And then I realized I was fighting for way, way too much stuff. Mm -hmm. You got to just let shit go and, like, just roll with it. Did you ever, like, fight for something where you, it was, like, not worth it? A couple times I did, but I, honestly, I, because I, I've been doing sketch comedy with people for so long. And when you work in a sketch comedy group, you learn pretty quickly that the best way to you know, ingratiate yourself to the other people there is to, is to know how to let go. Because if you're just pushing for something, you know, you, you might eventually get your way, but then no one's really, you know, no one's really happy or just doing the thing that you wanted to do. You, you have to be able to, to let go. And they're just, at, at Fallon, there are just so many um, variables that are out of your control that you kind of just come to expect that 
things will change and you have to roll with it instead of trying to kind of control mm. your piece and get everything right. That's also what I love about late night TV. Um, you know, there's not really enough time to make something perfect. So the perfection kind of comes in the imperfection. Um, mm. I, I think I once heard Chris Elliott describe his brand of comedy on when he was a writer at Letterman, he said, he said something like that his sense of humor is very disposable. And he didn't mean that in a self disparaging way. Um, he actually likes disposable. And I, I kind of think of my own sense of humor that, that way too. It's a little bit just, uh, say, come here, come here, buddy. It's a little bit just disposable, but I mean that in the best way possible. But I'll go on this way. Anything you say, I'm like a hog of clay. I just like party, a party in your hands. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You can stretch me until I'm ten feet tall. I'll cut me down to the size of a rubber ball. You can use me or lose me. I remember having like a conversation with Dana Carvey when he was on Fallon once because I was assigned to produce. They were doing like a an orchestral version of the Chop and Broccoli song, so they we they hired like a full orchestra, <laughs> and you know I was backstage and bef like maybe an hour before the show started, I just popped into Dana's dressing room right after rehearsal and I said, you know, do you have any questions or anything? That was great, you know. <laughs> it's like he's like, no, I'm all good. I'm like, cool. I just want to tell you by the way, I think you're just one of the funniest people on the planet. And then we ended up having a 45 minute conversation. Um, a lot of which had to do with nerves and the idea of being nervous mm. when you perform. So I didn't really know this, but so in his first episode of Saturday night live, he did a church lady sketch, uh, and it was the last sketch of the night in dress rehearsal, but it went so well that it got bumped up to being, I think the first or second sketch after the monologue for the live show. This is his first show ever on SNL. And he hasn't done any sketch comedy before this. He's mainly done stand-up, um, which I didn't realize that either. But he told me that he was so nervous that he was crying in his dressing room before the show and that if you look in some of those early episodes of SNL, you could see his hands are kind of sweaty, like his palms, if you just, like, pause the tape or something. And I told him that, you know, when I perform, I sometimes get a nervous tremor. My hands shake a little bit. And he told me, uh -huh. uh, he said, yeah, don't don't worry about that so much. He's like, the audience doesn't mind seeing someone nervous as long as they're also into what they're doing, as long as they're also enjoying it. They'll they'll like in the nervousness actually just adds kind of a human element to it. So, you know, as long as as long as they're not actually having a full blown panic attack, but you're still you could be nervous and yeah. still having fun at the same time. So that was a really good advice because then when I would perform on Fallon, I stopped worrying as much about, oh, will the audience notice if my hand's shaking? And then I would stop caring about it. And then that in turn would, of course, cause my hand to shake less, you know. I had a tremor too, Arthur, and I was very self-conscious about it, especially on stage. And sometimes I'd be doing object work or have to go into a freeze. Yes. And my meanwhile, my hand is just shaking like crazy and... I would become so self-conscious because it like betrayed a nervousness that I wasn't even feeling. Yeah. But now I'm shaking, so that makes everyone... Now I appear nervous, and I think everyone thinks I'm nervous, and now I'm getting nervous. Yeah, that's happened to me, too. <laughs> it's all just mind games. Arthur, I wish we could talk all afternoon. This has been great. I love talking to you, Delaney. I, it, you're you're one of my favorite people, and uh, whether or not we're high in your car, I, I enjoy talking with you. <laughs> right back at you, Arthur. I always, always look forward to talking to you, and um, you're one of those people that just always makes you feel a little bit better after you talk to Arthur than before you did. Oh, well, thank you. I feel the exact same way about you. Why, thank you, my friend. What do you got coming up? Anything exciting? Anything we should know? Um, not, nothing really. I'm kind of just sort of taking a little break from things right now, but um, I will keep you informed if there is something coming up. I'm mainly just doing these, you know, volunteer jobs right now, which are very fun. I got to say, I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I do have a podcast idea, so I'll let you know if that comes to fruition. Ooh, I like the idea of that. Yeah. You must have done a bunch of podcasts. I've never. I've, have you been on many? I've never hosted a podcast before. I've been on a bunch, but um, although when I, oh yeah, I meant as a guest. I meant as a guest. Yeah, I've maybe done maybe uh, fifteen or something. Like oh, that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, this one though is the best. Oh, <laughs> thanks for saying it's not. It's not. But I, I, I'm. 
uh, you're helping me to get it to be uh, the best it can be. Oh, man. Well, uh, well, thanks for being so patient. And Sid, thank you for your patience. You know, your dog really he put up with a lot from us the last couple of hours. Thank you. Well, yeah, he's more of a uh, laughing fan, so that's why he was kind of upset. But thank you so much, though. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Arthur. I think laughing is the perfect show for dogs. Yes. Because lots of movement. Things keep changing. They like the blackouts. They like to keep it short. Yeah, just anything that's just short or loud or very, you know, muggy. Or has Goldie Hawn. Or has Goldie Hawn. Yeah, she appeals to all canine. Yeah, her name sounds like a, a, a category of dog. A breed of dog. Well, her, her name was, her birth name is Goldie Hawn Retriever, but she changed it to just Goldie <laughs> oh, Hawn. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur, um, would you do us the honor of blowing up for us before you go? I absolutely would. Okay, well, thanks again, Arthur. You got it. Okay, I'm going to go blow up now. Okay, take care. All right, wow, Arthur Meyer, one of the best in the biz. Um, and one of my just favorite people. So such, such a, 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 a lucky stroke to get Arthur on the show. Well, folks, thanks for joining me once again. This is Michael Delaney saying on behalf of Brendan Sokler and Blake Maloof at Punching Up Productions, have a beautiful day, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>